This episode of the Nordic Surface Magazine Conversations podcast is brought to you by Oatly. They are the people that make vegan, plant-based oat drinks that provide maximum nutritional value and minimal environmental impact. As many of you know, it is important to think about what we eat and drink, and if we want to have a planet to live and surf on in the future. Swapping cow's milk for oat drink in your coffee or on your cereal can save 80% on greenhouse gas emissions. Since we're talking about keeping the Baltic clean in this episode, Oatly would like you to know that in Europe, we consume about 70% more protein than our bodies need, most of which comes from animals. Some of that excess protein gets turned into fat, and some of the protein which contains nitrogen ends up in the Baltic, because eventually we all have to pee, either in your wetsuit or back on land. Regardless of your preferred form of discharge, unnecessary nitrogen in the Baltic isn't something positive for surfers. It's worth thinking about. Oatly also sponsors Freddie Meadows, and because Freddie knows all of this already, he has nothing to do with supplying excess levels of nitrogen into the Baltic. Thanks, Freddie, for keeping the Baltic clean and for drinking your oats. Now enjoy the podcast. Well, welcome to another episode of the Nordic Surfers Magazine Conversations podcast with me, Joshua B. Kirkman. I have another special guest here today as part of our food campaign that we're working on over these last couple of months. You would have noticed in our most recent print edition that there was quite an interesting op-ed from the team at the Stockholm Environment Institute. And today I have the very good fortune to welcome Karina Baquet onto the program. Thank you for joining me, Karina. Thank you so much, Josh. Great to be here. Fantastic. Now, um, I can pretend like I know a lot about the Stockholm Environment Institute, but I thought I would let you do the talking to start off with. So can you let the listener know a little bit about the Institute and what kind of work it does? Sure. So I think a good start is to start with our motto, which is bridging policy and science. And uh, I would say this is quite telling and what distinguishes us from other knowledge-based organizations. Uh, We naturally do research, but our research is is more applied research. So what does that mean? It means that we connect theory to actual practical problems in cities, in governments, in society. Uh, We also try to bridge this policy and science gap by building capacity with the people we work, for instance, governments, but also just people from society. And we put quite a lot of energy on communicating our results, not just through the traditional scientific uh, outlets, but just in different part, in different ways to address different type, types of people, everything from policy briefs to address policymakers, this type of, of uh, radio podcast to, to address society at large, and of course, the traditional scientific uh, publications. And surfers today, so that's great. We're we're happy for you to be communicating this work to the surfing community in the Nordics. So, um, it sounds like a big uh, group there at the institute. How just how big is the Stockholm Environment Institute? I I think it's it looks quite global, at least from the the research I've done on the website. Yes, you're right. We are quite global. Uh, we've got offices, let's see if I remember all of them, but we've got offices in Stockholm, in Estonia. We've got two offices in, in the UK, in Oxford and York. We also have offices in Bangkok, uh, in Nairobi, a newly opened office in Bogota, in Colombia, and we have three offices in the US. 
the biggest office is here in Stockholm. We're about 100 people. And in total, I think we're about 300 people uh, in global SEI. Wow! Wow! What a, quite a quite a quite a quite a spread around the world there. So that's really cool. Um, and what about your research in particular? Um, we we the article that was published into Nordic Surfers Magazine was focused uh, on phosphates and also kind of the impact of those on the Baltic Sea or on on bodies of water in general. But what's the research that you're specifically working on? Well. Uh, I work primarily with the political and the management aspects of water and coast. So everything that has to do with water quality, water quantity, uh, the links between what we do inland and the impacts upon water, fresh water, but also oceans. And uh, I guess that my research nowadays is very solutions-oriented. So what are potential solutions to address water risks? What are potential ways to adapt to climate change? Uh, and I guess uh, the article that was published in, in, in the magazine is, is very much focused on this particular project, which is looking at circularity, so circular solutions, reusing things that we've used before and basically seeing everything as a resource, not waste. Interesting. And that's a, a pretty important um, terminology kind of shift there that in your worldview, then, would you say that there really is no waste? Well, that's, uh, let's say, our work with people working in the innovation and technology, uh, they are quite uh, sure that there is no waste. Mm -hmm. This is this is a claim we often hear. I don't know. I, I do waste a lot. I waste more than I should probably. Uh, so it's difficult to think about a world without waste. But then again, I think it might be about being creative and, and, and this is where innovators come into play. These are the real creators and, and this is the people that can create solutions for for everything around waste or any other complex uh, problem that we have uh, today in society. Okay. Um, on my list of questions, I, I was going to jump to one about the Baltic Sea in particular, but I'll put that one on hold for a second because I feel like we're kind of getting into the work here. So so what's the name of the project that you're working on at the moment? And can you give us a, a bit of an introduction to that more specifically? I understand that it has something to do with eco-technologies, which you've just uh, alluded to there. Right. So the project's called Bonus Return, and we're looking at what I just said, turning waste into circular solution solutions. Mm -hmm. And yes, you're right. We're looking into eco-technology. Let's say we define them as, as physical, biological, or chemical interventions, some sort of intervention, which is not just uh, about a policy or about attitudes. It's, it's a real sort of uh, tangible intervention, which is designed to minimize harm to, to the environment. In the best of cases, they produce other benefits for the environment and society, like, like jobs or like cutting down pollution while at the same time producing a benefit or, or a resource. But at the very least, they don't cause further harm. So it's very, it's kind of aligned with what we probably know, which is green technologies, which is sort of environmental friendly technologies and that kind of that kind of uh, solutions. And what we're looking at in bonus return is basically two main sectors that are contributing to eutrophication or, or let's say the accumulation of, of phosphates, phosphorus and, and nitrogen in wastewater, in water, sorry. And this is basically from two main sectors, the wastewater and agriculture. 
And the reason why we're looking at these two sectors is because they're the largest contributors of um, nutrients in the ocean. Uh, these are two very different sectors. Uh, the wastewater treatment sector requires very large-scale, scalable solutions. Uh, they demand very large investments, whilst the agricultural sector is, is a more mixed picture. There's a number of practice-based solutions, like building buffer strips or wetlands to capture pollution before it reaches uh, water streams. But you also have more infrastructure-focused solutions. But these demand much lower investments. And ironically, it is in the wastewater treatment that we see most opportunities for mainstreaming recycling solutions. Um, although it's much more costly and it requires sort of a much more scalable intervention. And this is simply because of how the investment schemes look, which is something we're looking at in the project. Basic, please go ahead. <laughs> yeah, sorry, you just heard my little breath in there. I was because I, I mean, my assumption would have been that the that the uh, you you were saying that the agricultural uh, interventions are much cheaper, but you're but on the at the same time you're saying that the more expensive um, wastewater treatment interventions show the most promise, but they require a bigger investment. Um, is it an interesting? I imagine that the wastewater treatment option, it's a little bit more out of our hands on an individual level. Is there much that anyone can really do or say about their wastewater in their day-to-day -day lives? No, you're completely right. I mean, uh, wastewater treatment uh, options are huge and, mm. and they require systemic changes and interventions. So at an individual level, there's not much you can do except uh, watch out what you put on your toilets, basically. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> Maybe don't watch too much, but, you know, as much as you have to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> put what should be in there. Yeah, sure. Um, but when it comes to treating and, and recycling, uh, then um, the reason why there's – more opportunities, not that it's, it's better, it's just that it's, there's more opportunities there is, is simply because loans are often designed for large-scale technical solutions rather than small-scale practice-based ones. Uh -huh. But an, at an individual level, uh, you can do a lot uh, when it comes to agriculture. Mm. But if you want to obtain systemic change and, and, and let's say, large-scale, upscalable solutions, at the moment, we see that it is at the wastewater treatment plant where things probably will start to happen soon. And and from just so maybe people who, who aren't so familiar with the wastewater treatment systems as they are today, can you can you provide a bit of a picture for the listener about what, what exactly happens with your wastewater today? And then maybe we'll touch on what some of the possible changes look like to... Um, reduce some of these problems with eutrophication and whatnot. So what does it look like today? Well, without being a wastewater treatment expert or engineer, yeah. uh, what, what we know is that it looks actually quite different in different countries. Uh -huh. So if you take the, the countries around the Baltic Sea, you have countries like Sweden or Germany with very good technologies uh, that can basically purify water to almost 90% of, of, of basically reduce pollutants up to, up to 90%. Mm -hmm. And so whatever ends up in the ocean is, is it's, let's say it's quite clean um, compared to countries like, for example, Poland or some of the Eastern European countries, which are have a very high intense agricultural production mm. and very low technological capacity to clean and purify the water. 
So uh, basically, it's, it looks different in the different countries. And what happens then when you purify it? It basically goes from your toilet to centralized treatment plants, which add chemical components and biological components to clean the water before it gets released into, into the general water streams and in the oceans. Mm. Um, in Sweden, at least, part of that those pollutants are captured and they are reused to make biogas. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. that, again, that's not the case in all countries. Um, what let's say that what we are striving for, or what uh, like the tendency in in, in this in, the, in these discussions is that. It's great to reuse this waste for biogas. This is biogas that is often used in buses, for example, in Sweden. Yeah. The problem is that you also lose a lot of resources because this is a lot. There's a lot of phosphorus, which is very important for agriculture, that gets burnt basically in in the process. And yeah. there should be better ways of of capturing that resource, which is a finite resource, rather than burning it out. Yeah, yeah, it seems like quite a waste. And and this phosphorus, because this is what was mentioned in the article, I mean, it's quite an important, um, it's super important to our food system, yeah? Like, can you maybe touch on just how important phosphorus is? Well, basically, if you don't have phosphorus, we don't have food. That's just the end oh. of the story. So that's a, uh, that's a bad ending to the story. <laughs> it is a bad ending because it is a finite resource. I yeah. think at the moment estimates are, are uh, around 100 years uh, until phosphorus uh, resources get depleted. So, wow. uh, and this is nothing that you can, um, let's say, easily uh, use something else instead of phosphorus the way for example oil is also a finite resource but instead we have come up with technologies to use something else uh, mm. rather than fossil fuels in the case of phosphorus you can't is if you don't have phosphorus you don't have food wow. uh, and so it doesn't make sense to throw away all this phosphorus where it should not be we don't want the phosphorus in our seas we want our phosphorus inland mm. so we should be able to capture it in a better way than we are today Okay. And so what are some of the um, technologies that are, I mean, have there been any technological breakthroughs on this capture of phosphorus in particular through the, whether it's through the bonus return um, project or, or through other means? Are, are there any good news stories about this? Yes, there are in fact quite uh, many, let's say, uh, technologies able to capture and produce benefits and minimize harm. So all of the things that we're looking at. Um, many of them come, for example, from Germany, from Switzerland, which are countries that are quite ahead when it comes to recycling phosphorus. So we have the technologies today. The problem is we don't have the markets for it because today it's cheaper to import phosphorus from West Sahara uh -huh. than it is to recover phosphorus from the Baltic Sea. Uh -huh. And so, but what are what are some of the, are there any examples or is there any more detail on the actual tech technology for retrieving it uh, from some a place like the Baltic Sea what, what are there any examples there yes actually uh, both Germany and Switzerland have in place both techniques and practices for recovering and if you go to the bonus return website you can see two examples of, of uh, some of the innovators that we're collaborating with that have come up with really brilliant ideas of how to do it uh, one is based in Finland one is based in uh, the Netherlands mm -hmm. um, I'm not a technical person so I'm no, not even going to okay. try to explain the technicalities behind this, uh, these uh, technologies but they look quite promising and you can like I said, go to our website and look at a lengthier description of these technologies. 
That's cool. That's cool. Now, um, the the there's a lot of different people who listen to this podcast. Um, they they all share one thing in common, and that is that they love surfing. And then I think uh, what we definitely assume is that they also love the Baltic Sea, and they want to make sure that it's a healthy Baltic Sea. Some of these people are also scientists or engineers or whatnot. Um, what's the best way for them to? Uh, if they so wish to apply their expertise to solving this problem, because it sounds like uh, like we don't talk about phosphorus very often in the mainstream yeah. of society, and we often get caught up. I mean, for surfers, the main problem that we think about is plastic pollution. I would yeah. say, um, you know, we see all these horror stories from different places where there's plastic tides in Bali, or there's you know there's there's plastic all the time uh, on many beaches up. Um, Mm. up in in the baltic and elsewhere it's a very common thing now so surfers are quite acutely aware of this but phosphorus i'm guessing that they don't really have much interest or or even knowledge of it if they are the types of people with the skills to do something about it where should they start are there any programs that you can recommend are there any kind of um avenues well i think that's a i think that's a very good comment and observation that uh Plastics and microplastics are have been quite heatedly debated late recently, and and with good reason. Mm. But something I would like to highlight is that uh, plastics are easily identifiable. You can see them; mm-hmm. they're quite obvious. And this is why I think we're much more aware of them than we are of phosphorus or other types of pollutants. So if you can. If you can see plastic, you can only imagine the amount of pollutants in the sea that you cannot see. Mm. Uh, And phosphorus is one of those. However, phosphorus manifests itself in different ways. And I think people, probably people living and surfing in the Baltic might be familiar with some of these manifestations. For example, harmful algae blooming, Mm. which was was, um, pretty bad this, this year. Uh, basically what happens with algae blooming uh, and why is it coming up? This is because essentially phosphorus is a fertilizer. Mm. And if fertilizer ends up in the sea, it fertilizes the sea. And what happens when the sea gets fertilized? Well, in the Baltic Sea, it causes algae blooms. And what happens with algae blooms is that they deplete oxygen in the sea. And what happens with that is that uh, less oxygen together with eutrophication makes the water warmer. And algae blooms love this combination of low salt, low oxygen, warmer temperatures, more light because probably climatic changes as we've seen this summer, mm. and a warmer ocean, which in turn make the ocean even warmer. So it's a it's a bad loop we are ending up with. So whomever has been or was in the Baltic Sea, uh, this year in the summer, they must have seen greenish, uh, let's say, a green color on, on the ocean. And you should not bathe. You should not let your dog swim in that. It's it's not just, it gives you rushes. It could act as poison. So it prevents you from basically, uh, yeah, living recreation, just being able to enjoy the Baltic Sea. But it also kills biodiversity. Mm. So uh, uh, in terms of your question of what people can do, uh, I think your previous observation that much of this is based on very, very centralized systems, high-tech systems, prevents us from doing quite many things. And we end up relying in that decisions are made or investments are made. But there are a few things that we could be better at. Uh, one is something that gets highlighted in, in this article, which is that vegetarian diets 
do require less phosphorus. However, I would say that the answer is not to get rid of cows altogether. Uh, instead, we need to have more varied farms. So okay. if any any of your, listen, of your listeners is a farmer or is planning to get a farm, then get a farm which is mixed, a farm where you can have cows and use cow manure to fertilize your fields. Because uh-huh. the problem is today most of the farms are so specialized. Uh, we have big cattle farms that produce much more manure than we can use to fertilize fields. Okay, okay. So farmers make your farm diverse. Yes, that's okay, one. Okay, okay. There's one. The What's second, another one? The second is uh, for everybody, and this is a bit what we were mentioning earlier. It's basically flushless and Ooh. only what should be flushed in a toilet, and okay. that's the three piece principle people, uh-huh. paper, and nothing else. Okay, there you go. Okay, the three P's, everyone. And, and I believe if it's yellow, let it mellow. Is that maybe something <laughs> we could throw in there as well? Sure, if you would like to. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and is there anything else that people can do in their day to day lives about this phosphorus cycle? Yes, well, there's two other things that oh, I think we could do, and that's if you're planning to build a house, uh-huh. choose toilets that are not so water demanding. There are now pretty good toilets that act. It's a combination of the toilets that you have in planes, uh-huh. which are, it's like, it suck things up quite quickly. I know. Um, I get worried. This- I always shut the lid before <laughs> I press the button because I feel like I'm going to get sucked into that toilet with it, you know, like it's so... It's so violent. <laughs> okay, so and and you are you referring also to maybe composting toilets? Right, or dry toilets exactly. Yeah. I mean, I I know this is a this is a sort of a user's preference. Is is not everybody likes dry toilets, but this is why not so water demanding toilets is a good compromise. Okay, uh, and then the last thing would be pee in the forest, but never in the sea. Again, oh, surfers aren't going to deal with that. That's going to be really hard for us. You're going to have to do it because <laughs> pea is a super nutrient-rich um, oh. substance. You have a lot of phosphorus. You could basically fertilize fields with pea. Oh. Um, but we don't want that fertilizer in our sea. No. You want it in the forest so oh, the forest damn. can absorb the phosphorus before it releases it to the ocean. Oh, this is going to be a tough one. I don't know, like, because, you know, I'll speak on behalf of all surfers. Well, maybe I'm maybe I'm weird. I don't know. But I'm going to speak on behalf of surfers. And there's, on a cold Baltic Sea day, there's nothing quite as satisfying as peeing in your wetsuit <laughs> when you're in the water. It just warms your whole body up, you know, that one moment. It's... um. It's going to be hard to change that behavior, but super, super interesting um, about the the systems that people can install at home. I actually have just been on a whirlwind tour of Scorner looking for a summer house and mm-hmm. um, with my dear mother-in-law. And mm-hmm. and one of the one of the hurdles we've come across is that some of these homes aren't connected to the to mm-hmm. the sewer system. And and it's and it's one of these awkward conversations where my I'm direct and I say cool we'll just install a composting toilet that's cool, and everybody else thinks I'm I'm a bit strange. <laughs> but these toilets have come a long way, haven't they? I mean I, I've I'm, I'm not like a connoisseur of toilets, but um, but I understand that there are many many good technologies out there that you know reduce the you know the the yucky bits that we all kind of don't want to really get to know too much about with our toilets. They're, they're quite advanced, yeah. 
No, that's correct. I think it, it's not the traditional hole in the in the ground exactly. that we might think when we think about dry toilets. They actually see and act quite much like a normal toilet, except mm. it uses either no water or very, very little water. Yeah. Uh, I guess here the key is, is maintenance and the fact that you need to empty it. But sure. I think many municipalities, if not all municipalities in Sweden, have a way of, of gathering this and, and basically getting away with it um not sure exactly how that process goes you're probably much more familiar with it than i am well i mean it's it's just something i've started to look at just through this process of um, looking in these summer homes um but it's very interesting i mean do you know much about like that what would the impact kind of this is putting you on the spot a little bit but do do you have any kind of guidance on what the impact would be if you know every summer home in scorner or like if a large part of the population started to use dry toilets instead of connecting to the main sewerage system, would it be a really significant impact that we're talking about here? Well, I think the impact would be to reduce emissions from uh, from these sources because not everything, I mean, depending on the system that you install, mm. some things might leak out yeah. and some are better than others. Yep. Uh, it also depends on the type of, on the capacity of the wastewater treatment plant that you're connecting with. Some uh-huh. of them, uh, this is this is a bit of a problem because a lot of the summer houses in Sweden have turned into permanent houses. And yes. the system's not built maybe to, to be able to cope with all of these new houses. Right. Uh, but like I say, it depends on the on the on the capacity of the system that you're connecting with. But either way, um, a step towards those dry toilets and then the proper utilization of what's inside the dry toilet is is kind of where the real impact can be found, as well as then just peeing on a tree or peeing in the forest. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh, cool. That's really cool. It was funny because um, as you were talking about, um, you know, warmer water in the Baltic kind of sounds wonderful. Um, as a surfer, uh, because it's cold as hell out there in the middle of winter. So, you know, warm water, okay, cool, you've got my attention, and maybe maybe that's not what you were thinking. But you, you were also mentioning that with the algal blooms, I just want to grab that quickly, is with the algal blooms, you're saying that there are actually very real health implications for humans and for animals if they come into contact with this stuff. Is that is that a significant risk for human health? Let's say that you might get a rash or or some sort of reaction, but mostly you don't want to swim. It's really disgusting if you've ever seen it. It's it's just green and it's yeah. not very nice to swim in. Okay. Uh, for dogs, for example, uh, because there's a higher maybe likelihood that they might swallow some of the water, then that could act a bit of as, as poison. Yeah. So in places like in south of in in the south of Sweden, in, in the Bay of Aarhus, Kristianstad, there's yeah, a lot yeah. of people that do not let their dogs swim at all there's wow. been uh, very big problems with it oh wow okay. so it is uh, it, let's say it prevents us from using the baltic sea in the way that we want to use it yeah exactly and look we can we've got great wetsuits these days so you know we can we can, <laughs> we can live with colder water temperatures that's okay um coming on to the agricultural side of the question quickly before we wrap up um you mentioned that there might be more ways for us to um, make decisions in our daily lives. You mentioned the vegetarian diet, but are there any other things that, that you know, the, the Nordic surfer listening here, what can they do to help keep this phosphorus um, 
on land and not in the sea? Well, of course, you can always put pressure um, um, on your politicians. But unfortunately, this is, a, at least what we see, this is a decision that is has to come from the top down because it has to do with how food is produced. Mm. And while you as a small-scale farmer could maybe decide to some extent, uh, the food that we see in stores, in grocery stores, and everything that gets grown, it's it's grown the same way. Mm. And basically, we are completely reliant on imports from phosphorus. Mm. Uh, so, uh, small scale, there's things you can do. You can do your own compost. You can you can buy local, locally grown, locally made fertilizers from manure and so on. But but large scale, uh, it has to be it has to be a centralized and top down decision. Organic food doesn't necessarily mean that the phosphorus cycle is being looked after any better, or or is there are there benefits of eating organic? This is a really good question. Uh, I, I'm not one hundred percent sure. What we've seen is that it doesn't matter where. Uh, it's not looking at the phosphor at the phosphorus sort of value chain, so to speak. So um, no, I don't think it matters. But I cannot swear on that. I'm sorry. Don't swear on that. You're a researcher. You're not meant to swear on things. You're meant to do the research and then give us some um, give us some results. So I'll 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 let you I'll let you off the hook with that one. Um, what are some of the the things um, to wrap up the the conversation? And I truly appreciate you taking the time today to join me for this special edition of the conversations podcast what are um some of the next steps for the bonus return program what what does um what does the future look like right now well we're currently working on looking at what specific policies and market mechanisms are needed to get this recycling and this full cycle of, of the circular sort of economy of phosphorus in place. Mm-hmm. Um, what can politicians in Sweden do? What can private investors do? What is lacking? Why, despite the fact that we have innovations are not being put in place? Um, and so this is basically looking at the links between what, politi- what the decisions and the, what the polic- politicians do and say uh, how this is linked to markets and to the impacts of, of not getting this cycle in place. Uh, we're also uh, working with these innovators to get them closer to a market in, in, the, in the Baltic Sea region. Okay. Uh, we're mapping things, basically, what if we would have these solutions in place, how would that decrease uh, uh, pollutants in the sea? So there's def- very many different components in the project, and there's I think we're heading towards a very exciting part of the project where results are starting to come up and things are starting to 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 click so please visit our website bonusreturn.org.com sorry bonusreturn.com <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll add a link to the website as well so that people can check it out but um Karina thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast it was um very educational and also a lot more fun actually than I thought I was going to have talking about phosphorus but um, it's uh, I, I think it's wonderful to get the message out about just how important um, phosphorus is to our food system and that we will starve to death if we don't fix this so that's pretty important to understand and um, I think we're going to have to check back in with you on your research um, moving forward and see how things are going. Thank you so much Josh. 
No problem. Thank you there. And to everyone listening, this was uh, Karina Baquet from the Stockholm Environment Institute talking to me about the importance of phosphorus and what to do with your toilets. Uh, That's a very general wrap-up. Thank you again, Karina, and that is all from us for now.